Welcome back to the next episode of our new podcast, Coffee Breakdown. Um, and I'd like to just remind everyone why we're here is that we're really trying to shed some light onto the human side and creative side of science, which we think doesn't really get a lot of air these days. And we're doing that by bringing on guests who want to share a bit about their work and share a bit about the field and alternative things beside it. But keep in mind, everyone, that this is about creativity. So it is a learning process, not only for uh, myself, but also for the guests here and hopefully for you, the viewers. So with that in mind, this episode probably is going to be a lot more of me learning than my guest today, which is Dr. Josephine Prohl. She's an assistant professor at the University of uh, Eindhoven, the Technical University of Eindhoven. And uh, she is an avid supporter and active researcher in the field of stellarators, uh, fusion plasmas. So, Josephine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> thanks for inviting me and thanks for having me. Quite exciting. Yeah, so to get started, let's, uh, let's start with that. Stellarators, this is your thing, right? So maybe you can, well, let's assume that our viewers know a little bit about fusion, a little bit about plasmas, and maybe even a little bit about tokamaks, but nothing about stellarators. So how would you explain it to them? Um, well, um, if we assume that we know a bit about tokamaks, right, and we've established that having a toroidal magnetic field to confine the plasma is generally a good idea, uh, as is, I think, um, in magnetic confinement fusion, um, then with a tokamak, you kind of quite quickly end up with this problem of the plasma current. You need to induce it. It uh, can cause quite some instabilities. Um, and you get rid of the plasma current and some of the problems associated with it if you create your magnetic field in a slightly different way, which is how it's done in a stellarator, um, which only uses the external magnetic field coils around the plasma to create this twisted magnetic field that we need to confine the plasma. Um, this means, um, so you, you can't have these very beautifully even uh, coils anymore that you kind of maybe know from the jet tokamak or Aztec's upgrade or eater, but you need to uh, go a bit wild uh, in, in shape basically. <clears throat> Initially, it kind of started with fairly simple shapes and then helical shapes underneath uh, two sets of coils, which are kind of, you know, uh, on top of each other, you know, it kind of doesn't sound great for maintenance. So people kind of fairly quickly went to so-called modular coils where you just make really weirdly shaped coils, but you kind of only need, you know, them like uh, arranged toroidally. Uh, and this is kind of, uh, yeah, what's, what's been done quite a lot now um, because you, because of this, you lose uh, the beautiful axisymmetry of tokamaks. Um, and there's like some very fundamental physics uh, going on, which makes tokamaks inherently <clears throat> good in terms of keeping the particles inside. Um, so for example, your magnetic field is always stronger, closer to like on the inside of our torus than on the outside. That leads to, for example, drifts related to the gradient of the magnetic field. Um, but these, these drifts average out um, at least uh, to a good approximation in tokamaks because of this axisymmetry. We don't have this in stellarators, which made life quite a bit more difficult with stellarators. So like the, the ideas of tokamaks and stellarators are pretty much uh, similarly old. Um, 
but because of this lack of accessibility, accelerators didn't perform so well and then tokamax did and you know so there was like a big push and focus on tokamax um but um some very cool theoretic research and i'm kind of excited about that as a theorist myself um, has really shown that if you just choose your magnetic field shape wisely you can almost trick your particles into thinking they're in a symmetric field uh, which is called quasi-symmetry for example you can also do another trick but fact is you can choose your magnetic field wisely and then you're almost on par with with tokamax uh, in the sense of particles not drifting so much um hey. so this is pretty amazing um now there's other issues that tokamax have too like turbulence for example um but well, that's uh, that's a that's a question actually but i first want to ask yeah sure sorry. so from like the this whole twisted magnetic field and strange weird shape coils it, it, and the fact that you can let's say choose a magnetic field that would just make all these issues disappear so this is obviously a very computational type problem an optimization type problem and it's like a combination of you know the theories and the, and the equations that govern what's happening mm -hmm. plus also computational power um, and so I guess in some sense, it's sort of like an, uh, a, a nice little playground in some ways, in some yes. ways, yes. Right? because you have a lot more degrees of freedom and you don't have this just sort of like, you know, very well, I could not well-defined, I guess, easy to define donut, right? Like, so yeah, you have yeah. a lot more things that you can play with and a lot more things that you could perhaps even do better with because of those new degrees of freedom. Yeah, right. no, yeah, exactly. So like usually one says there that there is, I think, I don't know, like four or five like main shaping parameters for like a tokamak. Um, for for steroids, we're talking several dozens. Um, so you can just imagine if you'd kind of, you know, take like different steps in each of these several dozens of parameters, say 10, um, and then you'd really kind of want to like combination wise what what are the possibilities you end up with like something like 10 to the 40 different shapes um wow. so yeah you can go really wild uh, in terms <laughs> of of shaping there's there's a lot to discover uh which is really quite exciting okay so that that like this is a very rich field there's lots of, of yeah. interesting things that could be found there um for those who are willing to try but then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which you are i guess eh? yeah uh, yeah yeah exactly that's kind of what motivates me actually. Perfect. Uh, and I guess then it is the next question, like what challenges do you think are coming up in terms of stellarators? As, as you mentioned, um, the, you know, there's JET and ITER and ASIX upgrade, which have, and this technology has been around for a fair amount of time. Stellarators too, but not in terms of a physical machine, I think. Yeah, we were yeah. behind, right? Yeah, exactly. In terms of like generation of building these machines, making them bigger, making them more advanced, we're I think like one generation behind Tokamax approximately, I think. So, um, do you, so in that sense, do you think that there are challenges upcoming for Stellarators that, you know, you see that the Tokamax before you have come across it and it is a problem or is not going to be a problem for Stellarators? Well, <clears throat> some problems are maybe maybe less than a tokamak. So like we do from what we've seen so far, there might be less need to kind of actively control the plasma just because it's slightly, there's like less opportunity for the plasma to misbehave basically. Um, 
so that's maybe a, a good thing. But then there's a lot of things that tokamaks are currently working on that have to be dealt with just as well in tokamak accelerators. Like really, how do you deal with the heat exhaust problem? What do you do with the diverter region? Uh, how do you design that, that region? Um, so any solutions that are found for tokamaks will be basically just as useful for accelerators. So I don't know, talking liquid metal diverters, um, you know, I could imagine those would be, you know, become really interesting for accelerators too. Or, oh yeah, what I already briefly touched upon, turbulence, right? That's uh, an issue in tokamaks. It's just as much an issue in, in stellarators. There, there might be in terms of, you know, the, the huge space of available shapes, there might be a shape out there that has to, uh, yeah, where, where the turbulence is like just less from the geometry point of view compared with tokamaks. That might be a point where we might want to go, but also maybe not because then maybe the diverter solution is really hard. So, uh, I, I guess from knowing your research, the turbulence is a bit more of your of exactly. Your like so, yeah. I deal yeah. about yeah, exactly. I'll I'll focus on the turbulence, and of course, I'll be looking for optimal configurations. But uh, as a theorist, uh, at least I'm I'm uh, by now aware that I can't just be like, cool, let's let's build that machine and everything will be fine. Um, I've uh, started to realize more and more how much more there is to it, uh, like the coil design. Can you even build these types of coils without bankrupting yourself? Or just also like really like from in terms of like how how strongly bent are the coils? Can you even construct it with materials that you have? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah this I, mean, is yeah, I, I basically know nothing about, but I, I, I remember seeing like one of the first design sketches of W7X, Redstone 7X, which is the new, the biggest, I guess, cur currently the biggest accelerator in the world. Um, is that I'm correct? I'm not quite sure. LHD, W7X, whether they're like the same size. That's embarrassing. I should know. <laughs> well, regardless, one of the biggest in the world. Yeah. And uh, I remember looking at this diagram, seeing the, 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 the coils. I'm just like, what is this? Is people are gonna make this. <laughs> yeah, really, I mean, it was a giant feat of engineering. Absolutely, it um, was, and mm -hmm. and I think the cool thing is like it has been done now, right? So you mm -hmm. kind of know, okay, you you can do it, um, but you might I, like so, and and there you'd really need engineers uh, to assess this. But could you go even crazier? You know, could could you make like the the curves even even more um, tight, basically? Um, and this is really something that needs to be considered if you're planning to build uh, another more crazy shape. For yeah, I guess it's part of the, it should be, or can be considered part of the optimization, right? Exactly. It will have to be kind of considered. Yeah, especially yeah. considering. Because you can get a nice, uh, you can get a nice magnetic field configuration, but if you can't build the coils to create it, then it's sort of not. Yeah, like or, or if you have to, be, yeah, there. or if you have to build so many coils that there's like no space anymore to access the plasma mm. for remote maintenance, for example, that won't work for a reactor either. Mm. Um, so there's like even people starting to think about can we build these crazily shaped coils but make them that we can can take them apart um, okay. to like actually access you know the machine after a while if we if you ever need to kind of swap the the first wall or something. Um, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of a lot of that need to yeah be yeah that's yeah. true there's a lot of also a lot of space for innovation and improvement yeah. right so yeah certainly that's really cool but getting back to the whole turbulence thing so this is more your 
your your expertise field of expertise yeah could you maybe yeah without getting into too too deep mathematics i know you're a theoretician and you love all the <laughs> mathematics but uh, sort of explain you know what 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 is the turbulence why is it there and why is it a problem let's say yeah sure <clears throat> so um well our big goal in, in fusion is to make as many particles fuse as possible to get energy out uh, that works a lot better at high temperatures and at fairly high densities, right? Like the high temperatures to overcome the Coulomb propulsion, the high densities, there's just more particles there that could meet, um, which is usually, you know, by design fulfilled in the center of the plasma. But at the same time, of course, we don't want our very hot uh, plasma to touch the walls. By design, again, with the magnetic field, we achieve that. But that means that we basically have no density or no temperature at the edge. So we have a very dense, hot plasma in the middle, very thin and cold, dilute plasma at the edge. Um, so we have really strong gradients in density and temperature. Um, and that just naturally is, you know, we have free energy in the system, which, um, yeah, basically encourages uh, turbulent mixing. It's a bit, you know, like pouring cold milk into tea or like in, in the atmosphere or something, uh, yeah, this mixing just occurs. And if you just imagine, you know, cold milk over tea, eventually you have an equilibrium where just everything is kind of mixed. If, if we think of this um, in a fusion reactor, that would mean our edge gets lukewarm, which is terrible, you know, cause then <laughs> it's like lukewarm is still pretty, pretty bad for the walls, but then also our core gets lukewarm, which is really bad for having fusion reactions. Um, so we really wanna, want to avoid that um, so it's really because we're trying to contain this yes you know, exactly we're abnormally avoid, abnormally yes, weird hot, conditions hot, yes yeah exactly exactly and the fact that we're trying to contain it without like a physical barrier or even if we use the physical barrier sorry <clears throat> even if we use the physical barrier then it would still be difficult but because we're specifically not that exactly. makes it very difficult. <laughs> exactly. Like, and I the see. conditions are exactly that they kind of, uh, yeah, that they're like the perfect playground for turbulence to develop. Okay. And so in some senses, um, of course, all the turbulence does drive, let's say, heat, like energy and, and particles out of the core of the reactor. Yeah. But like, what does it entail to stop it right like because if it's such a natural um phenomenon in terms that like yeah just by the nature of it being there in that configuration causes turbulence then what does it mean to actually try and stop it how how would you try right like yeah that's a uh, <laughs> deep question well so there's uh, like the turbulence doesn't come from nothing right it usually comes from uh, instability, so like waves that are kind of growing in magnitude that are kind of interacting with, with each other. So what you can maybe do, you, you like we, we as theoreticians, we know quite a bit about these instabilities, like why they arise. And usually just the mere presence of like a temperature gradient or a density gradient isn't enough. You kind of need something like, I don't know, some particle drifts uh, doing their thing. So if you can maybe somehow, um, I don't know, yeah, change change something about the particle drifts, which are intricately intricately related to the geometry of the magnetic field. Uh, then you might be able to make certain instabilities appear only at super steep gradients, which, for example, you might never want to reach, 
or you might make these instabilities that there may be there, but are developing a lot more slowly and therefore your turbulence would also be less, less violent basically. Um, yeah, and this is really where, where the magic of satellites comes in because maybe there are some shapes where hopefully many of these instabilities aren't quite so, quite so active. Right, so it's like, an, it's, an, it's not just the gradients, it's sort of like the interaction of the gradients with other plasma phenomenon yeah, that cause exactly. actual turbulence. And so it's, so having them there with that configuration and that gradient is only half of the puzzle. And yes. if you can eliminate the other, and the what half we can't avoid because we, we Exactly, want we that. want the gradients, right? We like want that's the gradients. Exactly, but, but maybe can the avoid other it. part. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. okay, and that's whole, why this magnetic sort of magnetic field optimization is is important because that's one piece. Exactly, of the that's other the part. one half of like why the instabilities are there. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So that makes so that makes sense in a, in a way that so through this whole optimization, not only can you achieve let's say the same performance as the tokamak, but like it might be possible to improve on it because you can. Play well, that's, the, that's the hope. Yeah, okay. that's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, and so so I've found, for example, that if, like in a very specific type of magnetic field shape, one entire class of these instabilities are like you know it's like a bit like with with zoo animals, you kind of sort them into into tribes, and like one one tribe of them is fully stable, which is kind of nice. Um, and we're now kind of trying to investigate. Okay, what does that mean for the other? tribes of instabilities um, can we leverage that is that is it enough to make a good you know a good reactor one day or do we need to kind of do even better do we kind of need to build on this particular shape and tweak some more to kill off okay that sounds really <laughs> so you mean uh, to suppress, suppress. Uh, other other uh, yeah other tribes of instabilities uh, there's still like a lot of work that needs to be done, but like there is indeed that hope, right? That because there's, yeah, we can go so wild with a shape. Maybe, maybe there is one that's just really genuinely better than a tokamak. Wow, that sounds like uh, sounds like a very interesting problem, and you know, definitely something if if you like basically playing with very complex puzzles, this is like ideal. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a fun. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Cool. I, I do want to switch topics a little bit. Yeah, sure. um, there <laughs> is something else that you have sort of vocalized before, but uh, I'd like your point of view on it. It's sort of like the metrics and merits of a, as a scientist, like this whole publish or perish culture, this whole how are scientists evaluated in terms of performance. Now, I'm just curious, do you think that what happens what is happening currently in your opinion and what are your thoughts about it should it change what's good what's bad about it yeah uh, cool that's a good question and uh, I think a really relevant one um, I think it, it depends a bit on like where you are both in your career and also maybe like what your ambition is uh, but I think so far a lot of what we as scientists do um, like we're judged on really how much we publish um, because it's like, it's a fairly, it's a like, you know, it comes with concrete numbers, right? Like how many papers have you published this year? Uh, how many of them were you like the first author or like once you're more senior, how many of them were you kind of the last author on, which is 
actually not so much done in in fusion uh, as mm -hmm. I've realized, but usually the whole like like where are you kind of the giver of the idea? Um, how many citations have you had? You know, it's like very like it it's seemingly very comparable amongst kind of amongst researchers. But I've already realized like with, even within fusion, um, that's so wildly different. Just you know, like just by sheer like how big is like the community that cares about your work um and as uh, as a statorator scientist um it's just by definition basically slightly less relevant to tokamak scientists and vice versa so like already there the numbers are a lot less comparable so mm -hmm. even though it's kind of it seems such like such a comparable number like your age factor or something i actually don't think it is unless you really or unless you're like really comparing against people in exactly the same situation basically so in that sense uh, i'm not a big fan of course <laughs> um but also I've, i've thought about this like how how else do you compare people like if you want to hire someone new for example like what do you choose like um mm -hmm. how do you know they're good how do you know they're productive how do you know they're doing innovative work mm -hmm. um it's it's not easy so like within the netherlands uh there is this whole recognition and rewards thing like a big like being discussed right now which i think is a really great move because i do think there's more to research than like just writing papers i think uh, of course especially in the university context uh, teaching is important right like educating the next generation of scientists and engineers is an important task which takes time away i mean like also as a scientist your day only has 24 hours uh and uh, maybe you do want to have a life and i don't know watch superhero movies once <laughs> something. um so that's a very good point it's something i've had to myself i've had to make <clears throat> a number of times to different people it's just like i only have 24 hours a day just like everyone else yeah, right? like and, it's not and how do you decide like what yeah. you do And uh, and if you want, for example, if you want good teaching to happen, you have to make sure that uh, it's okay that people who then maybe publish less aren't punished. Or if you want to be a really good um, mentor, that takes time, you know. Mm. Um, and it's mm. not evidently visible, maybe in uh, like in a CV with like the list of publications. So I do think it's a great move. Like so, there is a discussion now to kind of make this more visible, to make this matter more. Mm. But quite frankly, if I'd, if I'd have to hire someone now, um, how, would I, how would I know, right? Except for maybe educational prizes or something. Yeah. It is hard, it's hard to assess. It is a difficult question actually, because yeah, indeed the H factor is something that sort of condenses this whole complexity of of knowing, okay, where did you publish and how many people cared about what you published and how relevant was it? And, you know, all the sort of big, tough questions to answer gets kind of like simplified into this nice little number for yeah. people who have to do this process of hiring or, or deciding, you know, how to split up resources or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like right? grant money. Like how do you decide who's worthy of receiving these huge amounts of money yeah and of course you kind of it's it's like taxpayers money you want to make sure it's well spent it's it's a good investment in the future so you kind of want to give it to someone who's doing cutting edge stuff but yeah. uh, unless you know the person uh and unless you really know oh my god this is amazing work how else are you going to assess it 
Um, well, I mean, yeah, but it's also unfortunate in some ways. And I think I agree with you on this, that well, there's this old adage that once this metric becomes the goal, it's not a good metric anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, so exactly. As soon as people know that they're being evaluated based on this age factor, they can adjust their behavior such that they maximize it, but it doesn't really Absolutely. mean. Absolutely. It, it corrupts right? science, right? Because yeah. it, co like, uh, it influences the way how you publish. You might, it might end up with you chopping up your research that would really make one beautiful contain paper but you kind of decide to chop it up into three just because that gets you more publications or that you choose to pursue uh, research directions that are kind of currently hip um, because you know that will get you funding that will kind of get you many citations and I do wonder like what like whether whether we may be losing out on some research because of that mm. that like no one deems it worthwhile to do so I do think that needs yeah, that would need like a, a wildly different culture, which I think is why like big research institutes um, with kind of good baseline funding or generally baseline funding, right? Also for universities, that'd be great too, where you could really be like, okay, I can hire at least one person who just does something cool and po possibly wild something maybe where it's not immediately visible that this will turn into a patent within the next two years. Um, Right, and I think that there's there is an element in research which is risk, not just on yes. behalf of the scientist who has to, you know, risk their scientific career to chase paths that you know seem a bit strange. But you know, I I think they have you know like that for internal drive. I think it has promise, um, but also on on behalf of the institutions, they have to. They are taking a risk when they hire these scientists and on the behalf of investors if there are any that they take the yeah. risk on uh, giving money or awarding grants or whatever to this particular line of research and i think all, all of it has to do with risk and developing these metrics is just a way of like risk mitigation in some way yeah right um <clears throat> but of course yeah there's something to say that perhaps the metric that we're using is not the right one indeed it doesn't take into account things like how much time you spend teaching right how many students or or even other scientists have you inspired to you know stay in the field or keep uh, keep plugging on with their work right it's not the uh, these are things that can't really be measured with what is is currently being measured <laughs> no exactly but at yeah. the same time so um there is this move to kind of make this more visible. For example, like I, I wrote a grant proposal um, recently um, where instead of like the CV and like the big list of publications, I could write, I don't know, one and a half pages uh, where I could kind of write all this. But at the same time, I was not allowed to kind of give any age factors uh, or, or something. Mm. And uh, I could also imagine that people who do this kind of research, which is heavily cited and so on and maybe who are really good at that right that they on the other hand now feel um that it's to their disadvantage mm -hmm. that uh, all of a sudden like this metric is changing if this was if this has been the metric for so long and this has been how you've built your career then you you do want to make sure that that is recognized as well so i i do see like there is a lot of yeah discussion whether one should really kind of get rid of age factors altogether or not and um 
Yeah. I well, think there's no very easy answer. I think like you just sh should make sure that you use as much information as possible, which of course causes more work again. Um, that's that's really the question, right? Like it's it's all about condensing a very complex set of information, like all these different factors and spread very thin through different media as well. And then trying to compress it into something easily understandable by someone yeah. who has to make a decision. That that in itself, it, in the, its generality, is a super difficult problem. <laughs> but I guess from your perspective, like if you could change whatever anything like what would you add or what kind of metric would you think would be valuable maybe not to replace but maybe to augment whatever this h this h factor is yeah i'd i'd really want to see um mentoring kind of appearing um that which doesn't necessarily need to mean that you have to have your own students but like how you kind of help other researchers almost like how you yeah, also collegiality. I have no idea how one would measure this, but I'd, I'd like this to appear because I do think science as a whole would benefit from, um, yeah, more collegiality. Like, not that it's not there, but I, I do think it should be kind of rewarded if you're kind of a decent person. <laughs> um, I'd also want to see maybe how, how the work that has been done um, by a certain researcher has affected the field. Um, because in a, like in the end, we are publicly funded. So I, I like, I don't know, it's, it's a bit of a <laughs> slippery slope maybe, but I, I do think like, it's nice if the research does ultimately lead to an advancement of understanding. Um, uh, uh, but it's very tricky. Ooh. It is very tricky, I think, because like even, <clears throat> If we think back on some of like how science develops, some of it is some it, like occasionally, I, I'm not going to say all of it, but occasionally it's just someone decided this was a, a good way to spend their time and decided to, you know, write papers or short ones, big ones, who knows about this esoteric topic and not thinking that there's going to be some use for it in the future. And then, you know, 20, 50, 100 years later, someone's like, oh, this is great for this particular problem I'm having. Yeah. Right. So you can't, it's really hard to predict that. Right. So to, to say, like, even at the time, probably whoever wrote these esoteric papers, would not have considered it necessarily an advancement, even in knowledge, right? No, just... exactly, exactly. So this is why I kind of said, like, yeah. um, do I do I really kind of wanna wanna finish my sentence here? Yeah. Um, but I, again, I think it really it really depends on uh, in what situation you are. Uh, I do think maybe a smaller uh, a smaller research group at a university maybe can't afford, like as cruel as that is, but maybe can't afford to do that kind of research, whereas a bigger research group with, with more baseline funding or with more funding to kind of spend on, you know, these, I don't know how you Sky projects. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. Um, yeah. There it could be totally fine. Um, so yeah, I think it really, it really depends on like what, yeah, what you need in a, in a new person, <laughs> like what, yeah. what your role is really. 
Mm. Yeah, because so, for for me it was sort of strange, like because of my background and where where sort of the angle that I've approached science. I've always been like more goal oriented, right? Like if it, I, I want to see something concrete, tangible at the end. It doesn't have to be tangible, but it has to like the in, the benefits that it makes. I want to see the benefits, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> that's a bit different than I would say this whole blue sky, you know, try things to try things kind of thing. And I found myself a bit at, at, at odds with, you know, that type of mentality. Of course, over time, you sort of see how they can work in tandem, but it is something to be said that purely goal-driven uh, research is also not the way, I think, because then you miss out exactly on these opportunities for someone to explore something that might have benefit adjacent but you know somebody somewhere down the line will find it uh, extremely useful right yeah yeah but again that's also not for everyone in terms of like doing right like you like you might be someone who's who really like strives with having goals to work towards having something like very very much like that that can be finished where you can be like okay cool i achieved my goal um and uh, if you'd kind of give that person like, hey, do, you know, do whatever with like two days of your week, um, that might not work for them. So I mm. think I think just like generally like seeing more the person rather than mm. the numbers. I think maybe that's a very, very cheesy way to say it. But, <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but it's I, hard. It's hard. Like I, I can imagine also if you have to sort through this list of 50 applicants. And 50 would be a small number for some of these things. Um, yeah. How can you actually get to know every single person who's applying to know who's the best one, right? Yeah, yeah, you can't. You it's, can't. I think, it's really I, but hard. I think this is where the whole network thing is so important. Like I remember when I kind of started mm. off and um, my, uh, my uncle who has been, you know, was very kind of business savvy, used to kind of tell me that like the whole network thing is really important and I was like kind of you know I was, I was young <laughs> and innocent and I was kind of scrunching my nose because I was like it's not like that in science you know it's really about um excellence only uh but like the more the you know the older I get the more I realize it is because like not you know people can't know you like how will they ever assess your like excellence um so I don't know, like really asking people who have worked with with someone to kind of get some more uh, information on the whole image of of that person. Like what, yeah, what does that person make? Yeah, what, yeah, what makes the person tick? Uh, how does the person work? Will that will that fit in with how I work? Because uh, it might be a great researcher, but like it might not be compatible with how how I work. And then that's that's no good either. Like for for none of us. So I think in that sense, the, the whole network thing is sadly quite important. <laughs> it is but like in, in, in a good true. and in a bad way, yeah. right? I, I do think yeah. it can be very collegiate, nice and supportive. Yeah, and I think that, well, it's, it's also that itself is a sort of a gray zone because it also opens doors to things like nepotism, cronyism. Absolutely, blah, blah, absolutely. Blah, right? Yeah, so you, like it can again only be like a part of the assessment basically 
Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that it's, it's, it's true. It's true because it's, it's a, well, okay. It happens because it's a fact of life, right? Like you can't possibly know everybody or even get to know everybody that applies for a position or is interested in a position. So it's not, uh, it's a way of making it easier to make that decision. Yeah. Of course, it comes with risks that, you know, people can misuse it or misuse the, the trust that is placed in them um, by having that option. And so it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult situation for sure. I don't yeah. claim to have any answers myself, but this <laughs> yeah. is part, this is also part of why I like to have these discussions, like open this podcast to air these, air these issues and also understand for the, the viewers to understand how precisely how difficult some of these problems are. And this is not even the science, right? Like Yeah, no, is... <laughs> exactly. It's, it's like so much to do with humans. Mm-hmm. Again, something like I did not anticipate when I started. I was like, ooh, I'm not, I'm not big with humans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to be fair, like I, I do actually enjoy interaction with humans, but like my mother at some point said that, oh yeah, it's good that you're not becoming a doctor because you know, then you can kind of do your thing in your in your little chamber and I was slightly insulted because I was like "Mm, mom thanks Um, (laughs) uh, but um, yeah I I did expect it to be less about the people and uh, yeah but it but it is uh, Mm -hmm. in the end a lot about people and I'm quite glad it's really interesting actually but uh, yeah that's true it's also it's also like in my opinion is what makes it rich because yes exactly you have all these people with different opinions and you kind of like sometimes it does get a little heated but oftentimes it's just more like oh I never thought of it that way or you know like oh that's a nice take and you enrich yourself your knowledge of the field and also your knowledge of the world and the fact that in fusion actually we have do have a benefit that it's very international and very tightly collaboratively international yeah, it's wonderful. It's, I think, yeah. one of the best parts of our job. Um, and so you not only get the different points of view on the science, but also like culturally, right? Like how people work in general, how they approach problems. Uh, and it's like, oh, wow, this is a, it's very rich. And it's the people that make it rich, right? Yeah, no, I fully agree. It kind of makes you kind of question your own, you know, your own roots that you kind of sometimes take automatically. Um, yeah, I think it's really nice. And this is a this is a nice segue though uh, into another t- topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which is the difference between competition and collaboration in science. Oh yeah, right. Like, how is it that uh, is it, they're both they serve their function, but in particularly for science, do you think one is better than the other, or is there some sort of ideal balance between the two? Ooh, I don't know. So, um, I'm not sure whether we can. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm guessing it's not the goal to kind of come up with a definite answer. No, no, no. It's in your opinion. Sorry. Yeah, I, opinion. I think <laughs> um, I, I do think like either like having either one of them and by then only that won't work. Right. Like only competition is, I, I don't think, healthy or beneficial or and quite frankly, for fusion, not doable. It's such a big right. problem um, and um, needs so much. Yeah. Yeah, so many different types of expertise. It just can't be done uh, on its own. Um, collaboration only. I don't know. I think fusion sometimes goes 
into very big collaborations. And I do think, again, you know, as I just said, it's kind of part of the deal. It's like what we need to kind of move the needle forward. Um, at the same time, of course, full-on collaboration some kind of assumes that you kind of can converge on a joint path to take, um, which doesn't, I don't know, like if, if we're talking many people, then that doesn't necessarily mean the most innovative path sometimes, I think. Mm. Um, that, that is very true. <laughs> um, so I, I do think sometimes you, you end up with like the safe, the safe solution, the tried and tested, which I certainly think has its, its place in the mm. research landscape. But I do think once in a while having some competition, like as we now see with like these fusion startups, can certainly enrich the field and uh, rejuvenate it almost. Um, mm -hmm. So I do think there's, yeah, I think that that's where kind of the innovation lies. That's probably where the exciting ideas lie, which is not to say that from big collaborations, no innovative research can, can come, but um, yeah, I think sometimes competition, um, makes new ideas uh, prosper more maybe yeah in some ways it's sort of like having uh I, I do also think both are necessary and i think most people do see that it's just more where where do we put the the needle right like where do we put it on this spectrum between competition and collaboration um, yeah no i i fully mix. agree i fully agree and I, I, I don't think there's like a very easy way to kind of uh, note it down. I do think sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes I think having too much collaboration and I think sometimes we're almost leaning towards that in like the big research landscape or fusion uh, that like it's kind of decided what like the goal is and then you can participate or you don't basically. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I think maybe a bit more competition might be might be nice, but on the other hand, it's also, comes with uh, like not so nice side effects, right? Of maybe not having funding for the, the research you might wanna do or also the, um, on the personal level, is it good for the soul to have so much competition? Like competition can also have like very different flavors, can be kind of friendly and supportive, but it can also be quite, quite cruel. Um, yes, yes, that that is true. I think if if it's too competitive or too fiercely competitive, then it becomes, yeah, just a, you know, a breeding ground of toxicity in some ways. Exa right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, and like obviously you want to avoid that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, some some friendly competition, um, I do think is a good thing, and I do yeah. think we have that right. There, there is, I think, maybe inherent to. Like maybe not all researchers, but uh, quite a few. This whole thing of like, oh, I want to be the first to kind of do this. It's it's mm -hmm. kind of a cool feeling. Um, these can be kind of small things. I want to be the first one to do these types of simulations, um, or really, I want to be the first one to kind of to solve this. Um, but if someone else does it, can still be great because it's kind of serving the bigger goal in that sense. That's where the collaboration comes back in. Mm. Um, yeah, in some senses, like the way I've always seen it, it's like there are two, there are two opposing forces that kind of are, they're not opposing. They can be put in a way that allows you to move forward. But 
like one is sort of like a, a push I think like a com competition is sort of like a push it's like you're yeah. kind of getting shoved by other people who are like you know beating you in the race kind of deal or doing innovative things and you kind of want to like edge them out kind of thing it's just like that that drive but then the collaboration is sort of the pull it's like you need a team to get anything done these days right like it's by working together that actually makes it happen mm -hmm. so they're the ones kind of like pulling you forward right yeah so exactly they you can have them fighting each other and that's not a good that's not a good position to be in um because then you get nowhere but you can also have them aligned such that you're you know they're pulling you in the same direction the other one's pushing you <laughs> right and that's that would be nice, but how do you achieve that? It's an entirely different question. I think in fusion, generally, you're doing quite well. Um, oh, I fully agree. I fully agree. Yeah. All things considered, right? <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, yeah. I I know a little bit, not too much about other scientific fields, and it's it's rough sometimes, right? Yeah, uh, what you hear. Yeah, I fully agree. I fully agree. Like overall, I think we're doing quite well. Um, but uh, but I do. Yeah, agree. but I think you said it quite nicely. It would be lovely if they'd be like somehow aligned or at least the angle between them speaking very geekily <laughs> vectors it wouldn't be too big yeah it's it, it, in a way i think that the competitive portion that we're seeing now with you know different startups coming up and trying to claim that they're going to be the first ones it is injecting a lot of life into the field right people are getting excited and people i don't mean just the general public but also scientists yes are absolutely. again getting excited about the field it's like oh like this person it's like sports teams it's like oh that one said this and this one said that and they're yeah. gonna like trash talk yeah. each other and see who yeah comes and, and also like oh they're, 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 they're trying something wild maybe yeah. i wouldn't dare to but it's still also, cool to see what they're doing um maybe i can kind of take a slice of the idea and turn it into something new and yeah i fully agree i, I do think it's yeah rejuvenating um, yeah so so in that sense i but like in terms of your yeah in terms of your understanding of the field do you think that the balance we have now is ideal like or sufficient or do you think there should still be more pushed one way or the other to kind of make it better hmm. <laughs> um I do think we might be a tad too collaborative sometimes. The tad too collaborative in in what sense? I don't know. So maybe I yeah maybe uh, maybe that the like the the big goal is kind of predecided, and you maybe can take a slice from that, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, there is also like a lot of competition. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. Hmm. I think so. Okay, I think at the moment sometimes the competition is is there unnecessarily because I do think there there is technically so much cool research like not being tackled. Um, mm. So I think probably there there'd be enough to go around for everyone without yeah. the without the need to um, to be competitive with someone else. Uh, but um, yeah, I think yeah, but I think it's it's very human. Like also with within research, right? There's trends. What what is hip at the moment? Um, 
And then you kind of try to kind of get a piece and then we're back at the recognition rewards because if it's hip, then you'll most likely get a nice paper out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're, you're kind of, and then everyone wants that. So like everyone goes into that same field. Um, and in that sense, I'm like, I'm, I think I'm sometimes a bit, uh, I don't know, a bit surprised by how your fusion works maybe uh, mm -hmm. in, in the sense that there's like these big lines of research basically being kind of pre-decided. Um, on the other hand, yeah, and like sometimes that kind of feels like, mm, is that is that the best way forward? Is that, you know, does, like where's the, where, where is there space for innovation here? Well, that, but that at the comes... same time, it kind of, it kind of makes us aligned also. It, it, it has its benefits. Yeah, well, and, and this is the thing, right? Like all of these complex issues, they have both benefits or advantages and disadvantages. And the questions are, the hard question is, would we give up that advantage for the other one, right? Like, and would we accept the disadvantages of the other one versus the disadvantages of this one? It's, yeah, it's never very easy to answer, but the, you are touching on another topic that we have talked about before, but not in any great detail, which comes to this idea of lock-in, right? Kind of like you've, mm. you've picked the path and that's the path we're gonna go. And it leaves little room for deviation, especially if the idea you want to try is something that just isn't going to fit into that framework, right? So do you, do you think that fusion, is, the fusion field is in danger of like a lock-in that is potentially, because um, sometimes it's good to lock-in, fair enough, but is it, is it premature is what I'm gonna say. Do you think? Ooh, <laughs> quite a political question. Um, I mean, in your opinion, it's not. I, okay, so there, I think some lock-in effect has happened, of course, right? With either being designed the way it is, um, <clears throat> but at least like the the feeling I get from like hearing people discuss how demo might look like. It's, it's not final yet. Mm -hmm. And um, considering how big and expensive these machines are and considering how limited the public funding is, you kind of have to make a choice. I, I think, you know, of course it would be better to kind of build, I don't know how many machines in parallel and see which one does best. Mm -hmm. um, no questions asked. Um, but if you only have limited resources, you need to make choices. So I think because of that, of the, yeah, like the uh, immersions of all the fusion startups is a really great thing because there, I think there is so much opportunity now to kind of maybe try some different paths, um, which will be beneficial for the entire community. Um, but yeah, again, I think <clears throat> it's not too late yet at all. Uh, so like, yeah, some lock-in has happened but I think the minds are still open enough to correct the course if necessary. And I think that's a good point, right? Like to, how to fight a lock-in is just to have multiple organizations in a way. Yes, yes we have Eurofusion and I guess the, you know, the whole uh, ITER project as well, which kind of have this mainline drive, but they're one 
organization. You can't expect them to fund all the different branches of, of research, although that would be ideal because then you just go to one place and ask for money. But if, if you know, they just don't have the, the power to do that, let's say, or, or the scope to do that. And yeah. so, yeah, indeed, having, having other forms of other organizations, small startups, or even big companies who want to jump in the fusion pie somehow um, is some way to diversify. Right. Yeah, or also thinking internationally, right? Like just uh, the different countries maybe putting the focus on on slightly different approaches. Um, yeah, like really like the mere fact that the money is not necessarily coming from one source. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Though so I think in terms of the the whole different countries trying different approaches might lead to some other disadvantages down the line because let's say one approach does happen to work better than the others then that country has the you know sole proprietary of that of that technology which is a bit limiting from a whole you know national whatever that that is very true that's very true in, in which sense yeah. like these big international approaches are really nice because they kind of promise um like some sort of fair sharing of the knowledge certainly yeah i know i know that whole sort of uh discussion and bureaucracy ar around it has really been blamed for either being a bit delayed by a bit i yeah. mean a lot <laughs> but yeah. but in some ways that we have with such a large collaboration it's kind of it's expected that that would be an issue right like like they sort of knew it would be difficult to organize and that would cause some issues but there was also at that time no other real way to do it um there wasn't enough maybe international like public interest infusion enough to have each country start up their entirely own program um so i, I yeah there's no answer to this question, basically. No, no. <laughs> Except for more money. I think more money is always the solution. Well, this this is also this is also something, and I do we are nearing the end, but I do want to put this out there. Of it's sort of like how how does money play a role in science? Because you can also equally spend a lot of money and achieving nothing, right? It's it's it, throwing money at the problem is not always the answer sometimes like it takes a little bit of direction vision um coordination organization to get it all i do agree but i do think that that kind of starts to be like if you're like above a certain threshold and i think at the moment with fusion we're still below it fair <laughs> uh, enough okay <laughs> so i do think there is uh, quite a lot of really cool ideas that are just kind of waiting for the money to come around the corner to to fund it and to try it and yeah, and of course you you know you will again need to make selections what you try first, but um, in the hypothetical perfect world of having just a lot more research funding for fusion, that yeah, there I think I would I wouldn't complain if there were more no, money in the field put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and uh, yeah, yeah, again you'd need ways to assess how good the like the ideas are relative to each other. Um, 
but I, I am very confident that at the moment there'd be quite a few around that be spent like that be worth spending a lot of money on um so I, I think at the moment we would not be in danger yet of you know of funding something entirely useless yeah well I mean also the argument back circling back it's sort of the argument of these blue sky projects in some sense that is what you are doing when you fund them, right? Like yeah. you don't guarantee that there will be a useful or tangible product at the end, but it's sort of, it's a project worth looking into. Like you're doing yes. it just for the knowledge and that it wouldn't be throwing it away if you, if that is your objective, like, like try Indeed. it to try it, right? And so it's sort of whether or not the investor has that mindset as well, or do they really yes. want something tangible? Like that's, different question yeah but i think especially yeah yeah indeed indeed which i think is why yeah publicly funded research is so important because mm. if it's you know often if it's research worth doing it might not it's unclear whether it's a blue sky project or not right so yeah exactly it's it's it starts to enter the blur the blurred lines of like okay I don't know exactly what you're hoping to get out of this, but it might not well, be or, what you or think. Maybe, or maybe you, yeah, or maybe you kind of know what you're hoping to get out, but yeah. maybe you don't know whether it will work or not. But also. does that mean that it should not be funded, that it should not be tried at all? Okay. I think that's a very good uh, statement to end off on. I do have, I do want to ask you if there's, before we round up, if there's anything you want to promote uh, either in your your scientific life or personal life, whatever you want. Um, I no, I can't can't think of anything uh, at this uh, stage. That's all right too, and uh, so I guess we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. It was a wonderful conversation. There are there were so many topics that I want to discuss more, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, I really but, enjoyed it too. Like, had yeah. a great time. Thank you. That was fun. And uh, hopefully, uh, we'll see you around back in Eindhoven soon. Yeah, I hope so too. That'd be that'd be lovely. Really, thanks so much for the invitation to join this chat. It was really cool. Okay, and to all our listeners out there, uh, keep uh, keep tuned for the next episode. Thank you for joining us this time, and we'll uh, see you around. Bye. Bye, bye.